Good morning, good morning. Welcome to uh, the library. This is a panel that's part of our campus's celebration of 200 years of Illinois history. So it's very exciting. December 3rd will mark 200 years of Illinois being a state officially. Um, today we're going to cover 200 years of Illinois history in roughly 75 minutes, maybe even less. So that's a lot. And we're even starting really pre-Illinois history. So um, I'm going to let everyone introduce themselves. Uh, my name is Troy Swanson. I'm the library department chair. I'll be acting as the moderator for this esteemed panel. Mary Fifleece, I teach history, political science, and sociology, and I'm also the study abroad coordinator. Josh Fulton, I'm an associate professor of history here at Moraine Valley, and I'm also the faculty facilitator for the honors program. Jim McIntyre, also an associate professor of history here at Moraine Valley. I'm Jason King, I teach math. <laughs> I also teach geography too. And geography, yes. And geography. So this was the charge that I gave these panelists. I have split up <laughs> Illinois history into these areas. Each of them will share one thing, one event, one trend, one person that had a national or global or just impact on the state. Why does it matter? Why do we care? Um, so we're going to cover and move quickly. So if you do the math on these, it's, it's roughly nine minutes for each category. So no pressure. And um, so each of them, are, if each talk, then you're going to be talking a couple minutes each. And I think it's going to be impossible to do, but we're going to try to reach <laughs> Barack Obama standing in Grant Park at least in 2008. Maybe we'll go past that. We'll see how we go. So, all right. So keep note of things that are forgotten. If we have time at the end, we'll have questions. You can say, hey, what about this? What about that? And uh, so just to keep track of time, let's dive in. So let's start with glaciers and mound builders going way back in ancient history. And go. Jason, you want to go right to Cahokia? Sure. Yes. Go for it. So <laughs> when it comes to Illinois history going way, way back, one of the things that I think is the most important is Cahokia and the mound builders. Cahokia, it's a site that's right outside of St. Louis. It's the only UNESCO World Heritage Site that's anywhere around. But in the year 1200, it was about 12,000 people big, which was about the city of London size. And it's in Illinois. And it had a trading empire that went all the way from what's today Canada to what's today Mexico. And then, after a couple of hundred years, it just disappeared, and nobody knows why. But the mound builder culture, it went all over the place. There's mounds that you can find in Shanahan. You just go west on 159th for, yeah, I-80. It's got four rivers. That's there. You've got other mounds that are right around the Mississippi River in Iowa. So a lot of cool stuff that's very, very Illinois-ish and a lot of history for us. Um, just to jump in, I'm going to actually, can I pull this out? Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. All right, I'm going to go back a little bit here. Uh, I brought in my, some of my Illinois history slides here. So let's go back a little bit. I'm not going to go through all this information because that's <laughs> clearly a lot. But just to kind of give you some context of what um, Professor King was just talking about here. So obviously we know that, that you know, the, the Paleo Indians, prehistoric Indians were coming over, or Native Americans, coming over uh, the Bering Straits, walking across about 10,000 years ago. Um, just kind of go through some, some maps here to kind of give, uh, give you an idea of what, what uh, Jason was referring to. So some of the things that, that archaeologists found, even in this area, were things like spears that kind of let us know that there was some Native American activity um, here. Right here in the Moraine Valley area on 107th and LaGrange, um, you had, you had um, arrowheads that were found and, and other, other tools indicating that there were Native Americans here. So we, if we kind of break it down in the, the different time periods, we've got the, the Paleo-Indians moving into the Archaic period, and each one kind of had things that they advanced a little bit more each time. 
um, followed by the, oh, and here's the, the map that shows you some evidence where archaeologists have found activity where the archaic uh, Native Americans were. For example, the Coster site, which is in Green County in southern Illinois. And then moving into the Hopewellian Woodland uh, era, this is, is, this is an area that we know a little bit more about. We know based on some of the things that we found that they were, a lot of them had actually um, higher rates of obesity because they actually were d digesting a lot of corn and corn can you know, add some pounds on if you're, if you're eating quite a bit of it, it's very sweet. And we found just from, from tooth decay and uh, uh, evidence that they were ingesting quite a bit of corn. Um, but they had more permanent settlements, so they, were, they went from being as nomadic as they were maybe in the Paleo-Indian time and the Archaic time to being a bit more settled. Um, and, then s and some of the other the mounds that you see on here is the uh, Albany Mounds um, in Whiteside County. We have quite a, bit of, quite a few counties, 102 counties in Illinois, so it's, it's kind of a lot. I used to give my students a geography test on that one, and that was always a <laughs> lot of fun. There's Cahokia, as Jason talked about, and I'm feeling pretty good about that. I think we can... Should we move on to the maybe talk briefly about the Illinois? Oh, yeah. Okay, so first Native Americans, well, not first Native Americans, but the people that we know the most, right? Why Illinois is called Illinois. They're named for the Illinois. They invented football in Illinois, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so Chief Illini, there used to be Chief Illinois that yeah, would do the whole dance for U of I, which is no longer allowed, actually. That's a whole other conversation. Um, but their name literally meant the men, or as they call themselves, the superior men. Not that they were thinking too highly of themselves. At one point, you had about 12 tribes, then it was whittled down to about six. And I'll open this up here, go to my map here, that shows you kind of where some of the different tribes were living um, throughout Illinois. The sad thing is, though, um, by the time you get to like the, about the 1700s, they pretty much have been pushed out almost completely out of their land. So I can, I can kind of, I know you want to. Well, and just briefly, when you say pushed out, so who pushed them out? So actually, so the, I mean, it was partly because of Europeans moving in. As Europeans were moving into areas like, like, modern-day Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, they were then pushing those Native Americans further westward into Illinois territory. But the Illini had plenty of fights with people to the north of them, the Fox to the north, people to the south, the Iroquois out west. So they were, it wasn't like they were just you know, hanging out and had no problems with anybody. So they, their numbers had already dwindled even before the um, Europeans came in. The Europeans just added to the fun, but with things like you know, diseases and those types of things that, that wiped out so many more. So by the time you get to the 1800s, you had literally just a band of a couple hundred um, Illini who were left, which is kind of sad. Yeah. Sorry. All right, I'll get that fixed while. So I mean, I think then let's transition to the next time period, which is uh, trappers and traders, 1600 to 1817. And I think a, just an interesting point to emphasize is that when Europeans even showed up in Illinois, the impact of the European arrival, of Columbus's arrival, which is appropriate given that yesterday was Columbus Day, um, had already been, been felt. So um, disease spread quickly across North America, even to places where Europeans hadn't, hadn't gone to, right? So the, the lands that, as Europeans came, came not only were there the disease, but then there's also a shift of native populations that upset whatever had been here before that had happened. So with that, I'll turn it over to our panel um, events, people, things that happened, trappers and traders, 1600 to 1817. One at a time, please. One at a time. <laughs> 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 Go for it. Go for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be happy to. Welcome to the Mary Show. I got you. All right. Oh, we got it. This is showing you the, the actually the Illini population dwindling by 1760. Um, okay, but just in time to dwindle their numbers even further, 
they get, they get some European contact here. So um, if you know the town of Joliet, Joliet Junior College, the first junior college in the entire country, it's named for Louis Joliet, or Joliet, who was a map maker, a cartographer from France. And he was accompanied by a dude named Père Marquette, Father Marquette. Please open, there we go. And Father Marquette was a Jesuit missionary who, of course, their whole goal was to, you know, convert the native because, you know, the only good Native American is a white Native American. So, you know, as long as they spoke French and became Catholic, they were a little bit more acceptable as, you know, uh, they renounced their, their uh, savage ways, right? Well, Joliet and Marquette set out to explore the Mississippi River. So they get on their little boats, their canoes, you know, and they, they came through Wisconsin, and they come down to the Mississippi River, if you can, if you can kind of follow along there. Does this thing work? Yep. This thing? Yeah. And they get to right about this point here, and they encounter, here, there it is. They encounter some Native Americans, some, uh, some of the Illinois. And first of all, the Illinois are like, well, you're stupid. Why did you come down through Wisconsin? That was really dumb. There's a lot easier way to get down here than by the over, having to go over, walk with your, your canoes on top, flipped over on top of the, the, the top of your head, um, trying to portage your way through. When there was a waterway, you could have pretty much made it through the entire way. So he, the, the one chief gave Marquette and Juliet his like 10-year-old son, which think about a 10-year-old kid, like, here's your guide, 10-year-old son, go out and conquer. <laughs> and he took them down to roughly about this spot here where they came encounter with other Native Americans who had weapons, um, guns, that would have indicated that the Spanish were nearby. So then they're like, oh, let's turn around and go back. So they get back up on the canoes and they, they head back up the Mississippi River. And this time they decide to take the smart uh, way back, which is what the, the Illini had showed them. And they ended up uh, coming down the Illinois River and encountered an area where they're like, hey, there's this really cool big rock there. Um, this would be a great place to have a fort. If anyone has ever been out there, it's about an hour and 15 minutes away from here. We would be at? Starved Rock. Rock. Excellent. So they were like, you know, we'll come back here and we will, um, Marquette said, I'll, I'll establish a, a, a mission here. And when I get back from New France, which is Canada, um, I'll come back and start that mission. Well, on the way back, things got a little bit ugly. Um, so Joliet, so Marquette got sick, ends up in, in Michigan, ends up dying of a fever. Um, Joliet gets back on his way, uh, canoeing again, back up to, uh, to Canada, and his canoes overturn. So all the two years that he had spent collecting all these maps, can you imagine how much that would suck? Like you spent two years <laughs> right, doing all these maps and then you lose them pretty much all. So what we have is our uh, left are Marquette's journals. But those journals kind of give us a description of their interpretation of who the Illinois were and what they saw. So. One thing about um, Louis Joliet too was he was kind of like the Han Solo of his era. He was known as a woods runner. Um, the way that the French made money in, in the United States was they had a monopoly on furs. And woods runners were people that were selling furs directly kind of out of the back of their car or out of their canoe. So he was kind of in trouble with the law at the time yeah. and was one of the ways that he made amends was. And are we doing questions now or at the end? or uh, We can if they're we can. We can. cover ground. Because yeah. we got a gentleman who's got... <laughs> the question is if he we had the Millennium Falcon. We haven't disproved it. <laughs> we haven't found evidence against it. <laughs> but he did have a really fast canoe. <laughs> yeah. well, and also, portaging sucks. Okay, yeah. so did they, did this became Mount Venus and Cartwheel No. They were further out west. Yeah. Yeah. They started in and, uh, Missouri. Missouri River. And yeah. then, yeah, they, they went west from there. Okay. Yeah, these, were, these were the OG. But no, no worries. Oh, you're good. It's all good. You're good. Okay. Oh, go ahead, yeah. No, in in 
in sort of building off both what uh, e each of the professors have been saying, I think one of the things that uh, for me is striking about uh, kind of the history of Illinois in this, this particular period is that, you know, Illinois is, if we think about it from the perspective of, of our state, is, you know, seen as part of this broader um, place that multiple European empires are, are interested in taking over, uh, right? If this is, this is the 18th century, right? Uh, so by this point, right, the French have been here for over a century, right, up north. Uh, the Spanish have been here for quite a while, right? The British are, are pushing to, to the east, right? The British are going to fight this big war with the French and their indigenous allies, right, called the French and Indian War or the Seven Years' War, right? Uh, and, and by that point, right, when that war is, is concluded, um, you know, they're, they're actively uh, sort of concerned about uh, their ability to expand into this particular territory. Uh, so, you know, this really is a, a, a sort of contentious time, even though Illinois, you know, is, is somewhat of a backwater, uh, you know, certainly. Uh, it, it's a time where, you know, each of these empires kind of have Illinois in the sort of broader Midwest, uh, you know, kind of, kind of in mind. Um, you know, you, you don't have, you know, very much settlement at all, certainly even at the end of the 18th century. Um, you know, when you have these wars between this new America uh, and some of these different tribes, such as the Miami and others, uh, in, in the 1790s, um, you know, the, the battles and treaties that are set there to kind of open up part of the land here. Uh, but, you know, I think that's an, an interesting sort of component uh, to, to what Illinois represented to, to folks who would have been living in the, in the period. Well, and, and building on that, <laughs> um, you know, it's, you also see when, like, this is certainly the frontier for all of these empires. They're all interested in it. Right. But the problem for the Europeans is actually getting their people out. So there's a lot of war by proxy where they're, you know, all actively sort of trying to engage their different Native American group. And one of the things that happens, you know, in, at the, the very start of the French and Indian War, there's this, this real debacle, Braddock's defeat. Um, where the, the Native Americans on the French side stop this British column. And the only thing that stops the Native Americans is they're pillaging the supply wagons. But the, the takings, the booty was so good that word spread so far the next year when the French in Montreal are trying to recruit Native Americans, it's the first recorded contact of the Sioux. And the Sioux actually, you know, come to Montreal saying, yeah, we hear there's, you know, we hear there's a lot of money to be made doing this. We'd like to join you. So it's also sort of bringing the Europeans into contact with groups they didn't even know existed beforehand. Building off my colleagues there, um, so if you look on the map there, do you see where it says a portage, right, where Chicago is? So, so Louis Joliet Solo, we'll have to add that to his name, um, as, as they're, they're, they're coming back up the, the Illinois River, they get to an area where they have to portage. So they have to do that thing where they flip the canoe over their heads again and kind of walk for a couple of miles. And Louis Joliet says, you know what, this would be a great place for a canal. France, we should maybe think about maybe building a canal that would help us connect it. Because if you look at that area there, it's really a continental divide. The rivers that flow away from Chicago go, go westward, the other ones go eastward. So they're thinking, well, if we can control that waterway, we got, building off of what Jim and Josh both said, we got this whole thing then. We got this made, you know, in the bag. If we can control this area, uh, Lake Michigan going into the Illinois River, we're good. Portaging sucks, by the way, if you've ever <laughs> done it. Picking up a canoe, the people that did it, they were called voyageurs. They usually carried about 90 to 100 pounds on their back each time. Canoes were heavy. 
Chicago, this area was very, very muddy. So this was, it was not the best portage, but it was the easiest portage as far as going around places. So there were others like Portage, Wisconsin, Porter County, Indiana. I'm watching our time, but just real quick then. So we're leading up to the actual establishment of Illinois as a state. Quite different from today, and I don't know if anyone has can, can speak to that, but right now you think of Illinois, where do most people live? They live in Chicagoland right. um, or down by St. Louis, and then of course there's many people in between smaller cities. But that's not how the population of Illinois looked by 1818, right? Do you want to talk a little bit sure. about yeah. where we Illinoisians live? Yeah, yeah. While uh, while Professor Fifleese is is doing that, certainly, you know, at the end of the uh, 18th century, uh, right, you've got the the new government. Uh, you know, George Washington is elected as the first president, 1788. He's inaugurated in 1789. By the time you get into the early 1800s, right, Illinois had been part of this Indiana territory. Um, you know, Western expansion certainly for folks doesn't necessarily mean the Dakotas or Colorado or Nebraska or things like that, right? It means places like Illinois. Uh, and so one of the early national infrastructure projects that you actually saw was the creation of something called the National Road, uh, which uh, began around 1806, uh, sort of around there. Uh, and it, it begins in the East Coast, uh, and its, its final destination is in our version of what we would today would call Southwest Illinois, uh, so places like Vandalia. Uh, so it goes all the way out to there. Uh, and the idea was, again, to promote uh, you know, expansionism and, and, of course, migration and, and mobility. Uh, again, of course, this idea of connected to Chicago, living outside of Chicago, right? You know, Illinois is a, is a farming uh, sort of area, right? But, of course, the idea of shipping this stuff to market you're going to use the Mississippi, right? Uh, and so where Illinoisans would have been living, of course, are going to be, uh, you know, at least white settlers, uh, is going to be connected to, to that particular part of the state. Um, I, I think it should, we should mention, and like this guy never gets mentioned in history. He's barely even most textbooks. Just very briefly, uh, this is George Rogers Clark. And without George Rogers Clark, we would not be where we are. He basically claimed uh, the, what was called the Northwest Territory at the time, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, Wisconsin, Michigan, without ever firing a single shot. So he's not a guy that's ever really mentioned too much in American history, but he, he played such a big role. And I've often asked students, like, you know, and if you guys want to comment on this, like, yeah. why he doesn't get remembered as much, like, why is he sort of kind of forgotten? And it could be because of what was going on out east was so overwhelming that historians maybe, it's not as exciting, it's not as sexy. But the way he does it is unbelievably brilliant. And I keep thinking that someone's got to make a movie about it. Someone's got to write a screenplay. I keep telling Josh, he and I need to write a screenplay and make a Hollywood movie. I've got actors in mind who could play him. He was tall, handsome, red hair. Well, yes, I will play him. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so. Oh. Sorry, I'll just go pull up the map real quick. Um, yeah, yeah. Because I think we should mention Fort Dearborn. Of course. Okay. Really All right, I'm watching our time. We're almost there. Okay, so. so as, as the gentleman already said, this, this, these would have been the areas where, where um, Illinoisans would have been settling. However, if we go back a little bit, um, we said, you know, we, we need to have a fort, basically, on the mouth of uh, the, uh, right at the, at the mouth of the Illinois River. And so we're going to build this fort called, called Fort Dearborn for, for Henry Dearborn. And one of the issues that we have, where is it here? Okay, so um, is that basically everyone gets massacred during the War of 1812. Um, with the British. So basically this is referred to as the Second Revolutionary War. We fight the British. It's one of those wars, I'll be honest with you guys, I cover maybe in about a half an hour in my class. I'm sure my, f my colleagues take more time than I do. Um, but one of the biggest <laughs> things, I'm sure they do, no. or maybe not. But one of the, one of the things that the most, uh, I think, exciting stories comes from 
what happens right here in Chicago. If you look at where we are there, that is, you have um, the Wrigley Building on the left. So we're right on basically Michigan Avenue and the river, and the Chicago River. And there's a, there's a, a monument there. If you ever are walking across the bridge, stop and take a look at it, and it commemorates the people who were killed at Fort Dearborn. And the, the, and Jason can talk about like the erosion of like the, um, where the lake was, but at the point, at that time, the lake was not where it is now. All that land that's like east of where, like let's say the Michigan Avenue bridges wasn't there, it was lake. So basically, that's where the fort was. Well, the, uh, the British were like, okay, um, you know, they're fighting the Americans, the British were arming the Native Americans against the Americans, and basically, long story short, and I'm omitting a lot of details, uh, a company of about 180 Illinoisans uh, leave Fort Dearborn to kind of make their way down to Indiana, and they are around where, I guess, where, where um, Soldier Field would be today. Uh, they were basically massacred uh, by a group of about, what, a couple, so a thousand angry Potawatomi Native Americans uh, who were not happy with their presence there. And so things kind of ended poorly for the first Fort Dearborn. And again, I'm, I'm omitting a lot of details. It's a really cool story. Again, another movie that mm -hmm. could be made quite easily, but they change it and they'd all live at the end. Mm. Actually, some of them did live. Um, Nathan Heald, who was the, the head of the fort, did, leave, did, did live. Um, but yeah, so that's then, and then what you see before here then is the second rebuilding of Fort Dearborn um, as a depiction rendered uh, during, in 1933 during the, um, the Century of Progress World's Fair in Chicago. So, and then we get to Illinois Statehood in 1818, December 3rd, as Trey already said, and I'll stop talking for a moment. All right. No, that's, that's a perfect segue into our next time frame, which is the Prairie, 1818 to 1855. So, feel free. Um, I think one of the things that makes Illinois interesting is how southern it was mm -hmm. in this time period. Before the I&M Canal was built, which really brought a lot of the population north before the steel plow, Illinois was a pretty southern state. Yeah. Even think about like Lincoln, who was a southerner. Mm -hmm. We came very, very close to being a slave state. In 1818, the Constitution said, the Illinois Constitution said that slavery shouldn't be introduced into Illinois. But slavery had already been there. Our first governor, Shadrach Bond, was a slaveholder. Mm -hmm. Our first lieutenant governor, Pierre Menard, was a slaveholder. Our second governor was also a slaveholder, but he let his slaves go free. One of the tricks is some people said, well, if it wasn't introduced before then, then that means we can still have it, right? In 1824, they had a constitutional convention to say whether or not Illinois should be allowed to have slavery. It lost by 1,600 votes. Mm -hmm. So we were very, very close to being a slave state at one point. Very, very close. And then after the canal and after the steel plow, we became more of a northern state. But there were, people did actually own slaves. Mm -hmm. You had slaves who were already yes. there. Uh, there were slave, slave owners, because there were laws that were passed, um, referred to as Black Codes laws, that, that um, limited the movement of African Americans in, in the state of Illinois throughout. So it wasn't like, and it, he's totally right about the idea of this divide. You know, you, we joke even now, right? You go south of Kankakee, you're, like, you're south of the Mason-Dixon line. We, we kind of <laughs> laugh about that, but there's some, there's some truth to it here. But since uh, Jason mentioned the INM Canal, got a map up here. I don't, do you guys want to no, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. Yes, yes. yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you mentioned that. The, so, if, if any of you are driving down Lagrange Road, do you guys ever see there's a sign, or if you're on if you're on 55 or on I 80, they'll say you're now entering the Illinois um, uh, Heritage Canal Heritage Corridor. Maybe you don't ever notice it. I understand why you don't notice it, but if you do notice it, um, Ronald Reagan signed it into law as the first. National Heritage Corridor in, in the United States. 
And so the Illinois-Michigan Canal was building off of what Joliet said a long time ago, we should have a canal, basically connecting the waterways so that, that basically you could go by a river from Lake Michigan to Illinois to the Mississippi River and have all the waterway be even so that you don't have you know, boats that are going to end up sinking to the, like, you know, touching the bottom because it's too shallow in some places. So the canal is built, and originally um, the canal is built from, from Chicago out to LaSalle County, about 94 miles, I want to say it is. And so it's built by a lot of Irish uh, immigrants who are coming into the area. That's why if you go to any of the cemeteries that are uh, kind of along the area here, even um, St. James on the Sag on Archer Avenue in this area, there are a lot of Irish uh, graves with Irish immigrants, uh, many of whom were working on, on digging the canal, and then their, their children ended up serving in the Civil War um, on behalf of Illinois. But this is like in Lamont, and this is what the canal looks like now. Now it's fun to told this repair. Um, the canal actually made money. It took quite a long time to build because we fell into a uh, time of economic depression while it was being built. But it, the canal served its purpose. And once, at the same time though, the railroad was being built. And instead of building the railroad to go from LaSalle County out west to, let's say, the Mississippi River, they built it to actually compete with the canal. Um, so people were thinking, oh, the canal, all that money, all that work gone to waste, it's not going to be used. But actually was used. And it helped keep the railroads honest because at a time when they were like gouging customers left and right, you could take a nice little stately boat ride along the canal with a mule boy who'd pull your boat and sit on your little packing boat, take you 24 hours to go from Chicago out to LaSalle County because someone was literally walking and pulling your boat along as he was walking. Um, I think it was Wild Bill Hickok was Wild one of the Bill guys, yeah. right? Yeah. And we had a president too, was it Garfield? I can't remember which president it was that also was a, um, a mule boy too. But anyway, so that's, that's the Illinois Michigan Canal. And these are some pictures of today. The one at the top looks like, I think that's, I think that's where Shanahan is. Um, they've, it's a, it's looks a little bit better there than it does out here. If you go over here to Willow Springs, like where the train station is and off of like uh, Archer and um, uh, Willow Springs Road, it's like there's trees falling in. It's like you could walk across parts of it. And um, whereas out there, they've, they've kept it a little bit more uh, maintained and it has a series of locks and it's a pretty cool thing. Good bike paths. Yeah, nice bike paths. Almost the whole thing is a trail now. You can go all the way from Willow Springs all the way out to past Utica. Yeah. I've done almost the whole and thing. And you can pick up uh, Hennepin Canal, and you can go all the oh way yeah. to Mississippi River yep. almost. It's so. part of the American Discovery Trail yeah. if you like hiking. In yeah. um, you know, building on right, uh, right, right. Uh, building on what, what everyone here has been uh, articulating about this particular period uh, in, in Illinois history, uh, you know, I think it's also noteworthy to point out a couple of, of elements. Uh, you know, as uh, Professor King was mentioning, this idea of the transformation of the demographics of the state shifting northward. Uh, one of the other, of course, elements that contributes directly to that is the Black Hawk War, uh, which happens in the early 1830s. Uh, now, you know, eventually, of course, this is something that, that sees a lot of uh, militia service by settlers in northern Illinois. Certainly, Abraham Lincoln is among those individuals uh, who are fighting. Uh, but the implication for the settlement of the state, of course, is that when the war is over, there's a series of, of, of treaties, Treaty of Chicago and others, uh, where the federal government ends up acquiring a great deal of Native American land, uh, meaning then that individuals can, can purchase plots of that land throughout uh, not only 
the Chicago area, but across northern Illinois as well, uh, and begin to uh, settle. Now, this particular time period that we're talking about runs up to the early 1850s. I'm assuming that uh, uh, Professor Swanson probably chose that because this is the period in which you're starting to see the greater introduction of a railroad, uh, which is going to significantly transform the state as well. Uh, <laughs> obviously, he, he did yes, that. Clearly. Uh, <laughs> clearly, he did that. Uh, so, you know, the introduction then of the railroad in, in a substantive way in the 1850s, I would also argue, uh, does play a role in transforming the state. Uh, there is a, a great historian named William Cronin who's written extensively about uh, environmental history and how uh, peoples have transformed landscapes. Uh, he wrote a book called Changes in the Land, looking at uh, how pilgrims and others in the 17th century transformed landscapes uh, in the East Coast, but he also wrote a great book about the city of Chicago and about the state of Illinois uh, called Nature's Metropolis, uh, looking at really sort of how these types of transportation networks that we're talking about transformed ways in which folks sort of uh, were able to, to sort of profit given the, uh, the confines of the day. Uh, you know, Professor King mentioned the steel plow, right? But of course, you have to have you know places where you can ship your goods, market for your goods. Initially, yes, we are very southward. You know, this is one of the reasons why you have so much relative support for the Confederacy. Uh, you know, uh, from Central Illinois southward during the American Civil War, where you have a lot of what's called Copperheadism uh, during the Civil War. Uh, so you know, you have these sort of these points, uh, right, that sort of transform the state uh, in the first period of the 19th century. And also during the Black Hawk War, though, you have the real short, uh, sort of mixture. It's not that all Illinoisans are out to drive the Native Americans out. And there's also, I mean, actually Alexander Hamilton's oldest son plays a part in it. Mm -hmm. He's running a mine for this one business concern. And when, and, you know, when the U.S. Army shows up, he's there telling the colonel, well, look, if you go out and talk to this Native American tribe, they'll help you find Blackhawk. Why? They don't like him. It has nothing to do with us. It has nothing to do with making friends with the U.S. government. They don't like Blackhawk. That's it. And, and he also tells, this, you know, tells them, but if you talk to these other leaders, they're going to tell you every other way than where Blackhawk went, not because they like Blackhawk, but they don't like you. You know, and, and so you have this one yeah. guy who's like almost, he's, he's basically plugged into the whole Native American network, and he understands the aspirations and goals right. that are guiding these different groups. M and, but again, he's Alexander Hamilton's son, right? So you wouldn't necessarily expect that from one of the f son of one of the founders, right? right. Um, well, and I, I would say, and again, I'm not the historian on this panel, but just as a reader, you know, the Black Hawk War is significant is it kind of marks us as an East Coast state in some ways. Mm -hmm. You know, if you go out to the Dakotas or, or even, you know, anywhere further west, um, there's still Native American tribes and populations that are out there. But East Coast tends not to be, right, because a lot of those tribes were displaced and pushed because there was still open land. Yeah. And so we are definitely a place where when you think of the Native Americans who were here, um, even though there's some, there's some um, Native groups that still exist in Illinois, not anywhere near the way that they existed in other places like Oklahoma where, the, where major reservations were, or the Dakotas, right? Because they, this was like the, the last big push of a Native tribe to say, hey, this is our land, and the Europeans weren't going to have it, right? I mean, that was the big push. Like, okay, thanks, see ya. 
well, and they were gone. A, a lot of that, of course, yes, is is with the, the issues related to the Trail of Tears, certainly, and, and you know that trail does run through Illinois, and you know in the first half of the 19th century, you know Illinois mm -hmm. still is also a part of these other sort of larger themes that are going on in the country. Uh, so you certainly have a number of sites that are part of the Underground Railroad in this particular period as well. So you know, absolutely. That's a good transition. Okay, you want to pull it up? We'll transition. So then to keep us moving on that point. Let's move on to 1856 to 1870, Lincoln and the Civil War, which greatly shaped who we think we are in Illinois. This is actually what uh, Josh just said about this. This is a picture of Growley Mill in Hinsdale, Illinois, which is, or Oak Brook, it's kind of like around the border there, mm -hmm. um, which was a site. Um, now, this, it's not written down anywhere where we can say, you know, this book says that this is what, it's just that it was known because it was, this was not written down information, right? It was passed along orally. And so it's believed that Frederick Growey, who was from Germany, um, started his his um, grist mill right here in Oak Brook, um, was, was sheltering slaves uh, who were making their way from places like Missouri and other slave states north. And if you take a look at this, like I don't know if you can make it make out on the side here, there's a door, and that's where basically the slaves would come in at night, um, sleep there during the day, and then make their way out again. It's awfully loud down there, so I, that had to be not, I guess if you're tired enough, you'll sleep through anything, but it really was not the, the nicest experience. But there are other places. Naperville has some, and yep. um, Downers Grove. Downers Grove. Yeah. College, I think. Talk to us about the 1850s through the Civil War. You guys want to go? Ahead. All right. Um, you know, certainly the, the title for this is, is Lincoln in the Civil War. Uh, so, you know, given the, the history of Illinois, uh, you know, Abraham Lincoln is, of course, uh, you know, intrinsically linked to this. Uh, you know, the late 1850s is sort of a, a fascinating time, right? Uh, after the, the end of the Mexican-American War and the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo and the Compromise of 1850, right, slavery is sort of injected into the national political discussion. Uh, so certainly Illinois is connected to that discussion well before that. Uh, but by the end of the 1850s, right, Lincoln emerges kind of on the scene as a national political figure. Uh, he's someone, of course, born in Kentucky, uh, you know, raised in Indiana, comes of age in Illinois, uh, you know, from his days running a store in uh, New Salem uh, to, of course, his time as a lawyer in, in Springfield. Now, Lincoln certainly served in Congress uh, and perhaps most famously engages uh, with uh, the Democrat Stephen Douglas, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, ah, yes, uh, I, I, believe I, I believe the son of Jacksonville, Illinois, if I recall correctly. Uh, you know, in the, the debates uh, across uh, the state of Illinois in 1858. Uh, one of the things, of course, that, that strikes me about those, those particular debates is the, the pageantry of it. Uh, you know, if you read the, the newspapers uh, of the time period, the, the many towns that, of course, the debates are going to be held in, you know, this is big news. Uh, you know, the fact this mm -hmm. is going to be here, right? Uh, much like we might tailgate for football games, right? <laughs> uh, you know, folks would come in and be walking into town for the week and just camping out and waiting for this. Uh, you know, one of them got up and spoke, then the other got up and spoke, then the other got up and rebutted. Uh, and, and this took hours upon hours and hours. And no matter whether or not you have a politician that you enjoy, can you honestly say that you would want to listen to them talk for multiple hours on end? Uh, you know, even if you like their politics. Uh, you know, this was sort of the, the fascinating thing, right? Lincoln spoke with a sort of high-pitched twang to his voice, and uh, Douglas was fairly famously not a very tall man, so there was the sort of symbolism here. Uh, but Douglas was sort of the, by that point, the, the sort of elder statesman within the Democratic Party, uh, and, and he is able to sort of emerge uh, successful. Uh, but that's, you know, sort of, a, I think, a, a fun aspect of that. I don't know if you wanted to, to kind of add to that. 
Um, yeah, if you were living at that time, you wouldn't really know who Abraham Lincoln was, but you'd know Stephen Douglas. He was a very prominent senator, known as the Little Giant. The, yeah. the picture that you're seeing here on the, on the bottom right is from Ottawa, which is right near Starved Rock. Again, highly recommend it. Great restaurants, lovely place. Um, but in the center of Ottawa, historic Ottawa, they have this, this, these commemorative statues because Ottawa was the site of the first debate in August of 1858. And so if you, if you actually go up close to the statues, they're kind of hilarious. They got criticized because yes. Lincoln's got these gargantuan hands that are like so out of proportion with the rest of his body. It's like his whole entire hand could like come up on, like one of those Ents from like Lord of the Rings or something. Like he could just scoop up Douglas with one hand. And then Douglas looks like super, super tiny. Um, Douglas was 5'4". But uh, the, the depiction is interesting. Those who are Douglas fans even today were, were criticizing um, Ottawa for the way they depicted the two men uh, in these statues. But Douglas ends up winning um, because, of, and then because of something that we did not have at the time, which was the 17th Amendment, saying that you could directly elect your senators for office, which I just heard recently there's pushback actually about actually even repealing that. that. It's worth pointing out, uh, as, as I was discussing with, uh, with, with Dr. Swanson, that uh, uh, you know, this is a, a, a Senate race. So you, you have to consider the optics of the 1850s. Uh, you know, 1856, 1857 is a time period in the country that's referred to as Bleeding Kansas. It's a time when pro-slavery advocates and anti-slavery advocates are sort of deciding the history and, and the future of Kansas violently. Uh, and this particular uh, senatorial debate becomes uh, sort of the the place in which the political rhetoric for or against that particular conflict uh, is played out. The 1850s is a time period when uh, new technologies are being introduced, telegraphs, uh, you know, penny presses that make access to this information much more uh, readily available for people. So you can engage with this discussion nationally. Uh, Lincoln, of course, doesn't run for the presidency until 1860. Uh, famously, of course, the Republican National Convention is held in the city of Chicago at a place called the Wigwam, uh, where they bring in these, these rails where Lincoln supposedly, of course, had split them when he was in his youth as a, as a day laborer. Uh, but Lincoln does win uh, the presidency in 1860. Illinois is transformed by the Civil War, right? When the Civil War gets going, uh, the United States military uh, is a fairly small fighting force, and by 1864, so you know, 15 to 20,000, by 1864, the, the United States Army is about a million men strong, uh, and the state of Illinois was a jumping off point uh, for the U.S. Army to conduct operations in the West, because there were many theaters of the war. Uh, so a lot of uh, the banks, of course, in Chicago are going to be transformed by this. Uh, and of course, the ag natural agricultural resources and timber that the, the state had uh, would prove useful uh, for the U.S. military in this particular period. Uh, and of course, um, I don't know, I mean, I can speak about Camp Douglas, but does anybody, else, anybody want to? Uh, okay. Uh, so. Of course, uh, again, the Civil War is being fought all over the country, uh, and one of the aspects or one of the things, of course, that the United States military wanted to do was they wanted to get control of the Mississippi River. And so in the spring of 1862, early 1862, one of the things they're going to go do uh, is operating from, from Cairo, Illinois. They're going to travel southward. They're going to capture uh, these two forts called Donelson and Henry. Uh, and the individuals who, the Confederates who are captured there are actually brought northward. They're put into a prison camp on the south side of the city uh, on land that actually had been owned by Stephen Douglas. Douglas had passed away uh, a, a year or so before, uh, and the, the land had been used as a U.S. military training camp for at least a short period of time, and then again is turned over into this prison camp. Uh, now, the conditions, of course, here uh, are, are particularly brutal. 
Uh, there is a, a actually a mass grave that exists uh, in the city today. You can go and, and visit it where a few thousand of these Confederate prisoners are buried. Uh, disease and, and sort of lack of, uh, you know, sort of resources and things, sanitation, uh, you know, contributed to, to, to this sort of extremely high death rate. By the time you get into 1864, so the last year or so of the war, uh, there was a real public and prominent opposition to President Lincoln, you know, because of emancipation and because of how the war was going. Uh, and so if you read Chicago and you read newspapers in Illinois at the time, there was a feeling that uh, that maybe Camp Douglas was going to be uh, opened up by uh, Confederate agents to be used as sort of a, a secret conspiracy to fight the North. Uh, that doesn't happen. Uh, but it's sort of one of the, the interesting legacies of, of this. And there's very little legacy, public legacy, of Camp Douglas. Uh, there's basically a, a, a monument in the parking lot of a funeral home on the south side. That's basically right. it. Yeah. But with There we go. Thank you. 636 West 35th Street? East. There you go. East 35th Street. The mass... The mass grave that they built for that is the largest one in the Western Hemisphere. It's an Oakwood Cemetery. It's on, it's on the east side. It's near where Stephen Douglas is buried, but he's not in the same cemetery. <laughs> okay, um, so I want to keep us on track. A um, couple okay, quick points. Real I, we quick, need to yeah. get through the Civil War. We need to hear about yeah. Grant. Two, well, Grant. two things. Well, yeah, gr I was going to say, actually, if you stop and think about the, the, the top levels of this, the strategic lash-up that wins the war really comes out of Illinois because you have Lincoln and Grant who are both pushing this idea of offensive on all fronts, which is what eventually wins the war for the North. They have all the, they have all the right things. They have manpower, industry, uh, transportation network, and so forth that can do this. The other thing, real quick to backtrack, that's not often brought out about the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Lincoln also, I think, deserves credit for understanding the telegraph and its power. Oh he yeah. actually used to bring copies of his speeches to the telegraph operators for the various newspapers so he could, you know, that's message, we, today we call it message control, right? But, but he, under, he grasped this in the 1850s, 1860s. I want to highlight uh, just briefly about some prominent women uh, during the Civil War, but one in particular, this is a story that's kind of a heartbreaking story, actually. Oh, yeah. um, the person that you see there on your left uh, is, in fact, a woman named Jenny Hodgers, who came from Ireland and ended up enlisting in the Civil War as, and dressed as a man and served uh, in combat with distinction um, and came home and decided, you know what? I have a lot more rights as a man than I do as a woman. I can't vote as a woman. So I'm just going to stay a man. And she continued to dress as a man and live out her life as a man. Well, when it came time to collect her pension and to you know, go through some of those things that you have to do as, as an older person, it was revealed that she was, in fact, a woman. And so she ended up being put in <clears throat> essentially a, like a, a mental asylum at the end of her life um, and because they were, she was forced to then go, go back to where she was forced to return to wearing dresses after a lifetime of having worn men's clothing. Um, it's, it's kind of a heartbreaking story. So she, uh, and I don't, the, as far as the military aspect, she fought in the 95th Regiment. If you guys want to talk about that at all, but um, just in terms of her her, her story, uh, she's one of the few women that we know about who actually did uh, serve uh, in the Civil War. Okay, I'm going to move us along. So we are going to move on to 1871 to 1945. A big nothing <laughs> happened then. <laughs> no, uh, 70, at all. 70, 80 year period. Sure. Labor and urbanization. Anyone ever see these gates before in person? These are the, the gates of the Chicago Stockyards. 
um, which basically, if you were living in the area at the time, you would smell it because you, you would know you were there because of all the hog butchering that would take place. And we, were, we became basically, like at, at emerging from the Civil War, as the hog butchers of the world, right, as the, as the, the meat capital of the world. Um, and there, were, there was lots of killing taking place in, those, uh, in that particular stockyard. And we actually had people who, who benefited from, so, from, from it so much. Henry Ford visited the stockyards um, in the, the latter part of the 19th century and said, this is a really smart way how they've kind of, uh, they have everything set up completely in a line, an assembly line, and how one person, you know, cuts off the head, one person, you know, cuts off the shank, one person does this part. And he's like, this would be a great way to build my cars when I want to do that in the future. And so he takes that, that actually what he learns from the stockyards and applies it to his own assembly line later. Um, but there's, it's a, there's some really interesting stories about, about the stockyard. I mean, we could go on and on about it. If you ever read right. Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, which was written to highlight the plight of Lithuanian immigrants who were working um, in the stockyards under some pretty dangerous conditions. The problem was, you know, as he said later, Upton Sinclair said, you know, I aimed for their hearts, but instead I hit their stomachs. Because people were so grossed out by the conditions that he wrote about, like about, you know, rat feces being in your, in your meat and all sorts of yucky things like that. So people really weren't paying attention, like, to hell with the immigrants. <laughs> we're concerned about our sausage. It's really gross. But, um, but things like, um, like regulation of, of our food came out of that book. Meat Inspection Act, yeah. But I like the quote, we use all the pig except for the squeal. Which one of the things I learned about reading it from Chicago, the City of the Century and other books that, that how intel I didn't realize how intelligent pigs actually are. And they had what was called the Hereford wheel and they would basically attach the pig's hind leg to the wheel and basically and would slaughter it as it would go up like around this wheel in this cir circular motion. And I said that how the, the pigs would be screaming, kind of like Silence of the Lambs or the lambs, they were screaming. The pigs were squealing because they knew what was coming. So it was often said it was a very, a very dark place to work in many, many different ways. Uh, let's see. The fire? I should mention that. I can. I mean, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean. October 8th. Yeah. A couple yeah. of days ago. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the, the fire certainly, the Chicago fire in 18, so you know, it transformed certainly the, uh, you know, the downtown landscape. Um, you know, I don't know about all of you, but when I, I grew up, of course, the, uh, the thing was, of course, you know, it's Mrs. O'Leary's cow and, 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 and all of this. And then you start reading yeah. and you go, oh, this is, a ho this is an anti-immigrant thing. And this is sort of an anti-Irish thing. And, and, and really was indicative of the, uh, you know, the troubles that existed there for, for immigrant communities that were, were remaking the city. Uh, and that in and of itself wasn't new. There had been a series of what were called, you know, the, the beer wars or lager riots about 20 years before. Uh, and... You know, immigrant communities by the 1870s and 80s were transforming and were remaking the city. And of course, given the racial politics of the late 19th century, you tended to see, you know, the city of Chicago, uh, you know, sort of transforming into these sort of ethnic enclaves, right, uh, where there would be these associations for particular uh, immigrant groups, uh, you know, that would, would offer assistance to those individual communities. So say, for example, Andersonville in the north, right, Pilsen, of course, and, and, and many others. Uh, now, you know, when it came to sort of how they were able to kind of negotiate this, 
uh, you know, this new landscape, you know, it varied. Some are more accepting than others. Uh, you know, very famously, by the beginning of the 20th century, uh, you start to see the transformation of an area like Bronzeville. Uh, and, of course, uh, the, the growth of an African-American community there, uh, which was not welcomed uh, by many of the other neighboring communities. Uh, it's noteworthy, of course, that in that particular period, just after the First World War, which I can mention in a second, uh, you know, there was a, a fairly significant race riot, uh, you know, that happened in the city of Chicago in, in 1919. Um, you know, when it comes to the idea of, you know, getting involved in, in military conflict, certainly the First World War uh, is an incredibly significant conflict uh, for the state of Illinois. Uh, you know, the war begins in the spring of 1917. Uh, you know, you see a number of divisions that will deploy from Illinois, particularly, uh, you know, the First Division and others uh, that'll take part in, in, in the conflict. Uh, at home, uh, of course, every state uh, in the United States had what was called the, the Council of Defense, uh, where their job was to act as kind of the clearinghouse for all different types of operations during the war, uh, meaning that uh, this was a war that not everybody was uh, is supportive of at the start, uh, and so what you will see uh, is, is a real emphasis, a coercive emphasis, on patriotism and on being patriotic. Uh, you know, World War I, America is joining with Britain and France and fighting Germany. Uh, so there's a fairly high level of anti-Germanism uh, in, in the state uh, in, during this particular period. Fairly famously, uh, you know, Robert Prager was a young German man. Uh, was a miner, was killed in Collinsville, Illinois, uh, which is a mining town uh, not far, too far away from St. Louis. Uh, but many of the, the arms of the national government uh, during the First World War, uh, such as the Committee on Public Information, which is you know, trying to get the propaganda out there, uh, and the four-minute men who were designed to, to kind of get up and give public speeches for the war, uh, this is all created in Illinois. This is all created in Chicago. Uh, you know, it's a pretty repressive existence, honestly, uh, but you know, this is what folks were uh, embracing within that, that time period. Should we go to the second one? Well, before the second, do, do they cover like the Tinder yeah, this other thing? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah go ahead. Yeah. Keep going. Oh, sorry, we're going away. Okay, so yeah, yeah, keep going. There you go. Back from the fire. Yeah, second city. So one of the things, like one of probably the Chicago fire was like the best thing to ever happen to the city of Chicago because it really. There we go. Is there? That's perfect. Um, because it, it sort of they were able to rebuild literally like from the ashes. So we get the nickname. Yes, sir. Absolutely. I mean, you, had to re you have to rebuild a city, right? So it absolutely did. Um, and we have the nickname the Second City, which uh, was like one of those things that uh, we take it as a, is this sort of a, a derisive term that we are second to New York, but it's actually the rebuilding of the Phoenix coming out of the ashes, Chicago rebuilding as, as itself as the Second City. So Second City Comedy Troupe gets its name from that. Uh, but one of the things I want to mention is, is, a, is a major American history event that occurred in 1886, um, in May mm -hmm. of 1886, and that is the Haymarket Square Incident, riot, bomb throwing, disaster, whatever you want to whatever you want to call it, but there's a lot going on there. So, the McCormick Reaper uh, factory was located in the city of Chicago, and the, the 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 workers were on strike. They were, and this is part of a larger context in American history of people who were campaigning for an eight-hour workday, better working conditions, etc. So it wasn't just happening here, but this is one of the most prominent stories, um, and so. Um, Basically, that you had a group of, of scabs, of, of replacement workers who were being brought in to work at the factory while these other men were on strike. They clashed, the police intervened, um, several laborers were killed. And so the next day, a group of, of, of um, they, they were anarchists, they advocated the, the violent overthrow of government, 
um, called for a rally at the um, Haymarket Square, which was on um, Desplaines and near Halsted Street. Desplaines and Randolph is actually the, the exact intersection. Um, and so they called for this, this rally, and part of the problem was that, you know, while they wanted to be a peaceful rally, August Spies, who's one of the guys organizing it, instead the, the, um, the bill that was put out says working men to arms, the idea, so it, it had violent tones even going into it. So they're meeting, they're talking, their usual death to the capitalists, all that fun stuff, um, and the mayor of Chicago who was there, Carter Harrison, he leaves, he goes home, and shortly thereafter it starts to rain, the police come in to break up the crowd, and when the police come in, there's an explosion. Now, to this day, and there's such, such interesting literature out there to read about this, we, we still don't know exactly who threw that bomb. There, are, there have been different kind of theories put forward, but certainly the anarchists were the guys who were blamed for it. Um, Chicago was put under martial law, and I don't, I, I don't want to like cut in too much if either of you want to jump in on this too. I just was, you want, you want me to keep going or? Question. Okay. Right. So, uh, so Chicago was put under martial law. Um, you, know, you couldn't have groups larger than a few people on a, on a street corner talking. And these eight anarchists are put on trial. Now, the trial um, is a bit of a farce. Um, this is the people that were coming in saying that they want to actually listen to what they have to say, and the evidence are basically told, eh, you're not good for this jury, get off. Um, it's very clear that, that you know, where people like Joseph Medill, who was the head of the Chicago Tribune, they wanted to see men like this be put to death, or at least put away. Um, and so the eight anarchists are found guilty. Um, but I did read a really interesting piece of, of kind of revisionist history um, that I, I don't know if I, I, any of you guys have about the idea where um, there was a, a recent uh, re-examination of, ha of Haymarket looking at where um, a student asked a professor, well, if, you know, if basically if these guys were not guilty and they were, you know, if there was nothing to talk about, what do they talk about for the months that this trial went on? Um, and so he kind of examined more some of the evidence coming from the trial. And again, these men were not purely innocent. They were men who advocated the violent overthrow of government. They were men who were good with dynamite. As Lewis, a matter of fact, one of the guys yeah, rather than, blew himself up. Yes. Rather than be hanged, yeah. um, he blew himself up instead. Well, how did he get that dynamite? Obviously, they were able to smuggle it in somehow. He also had a famous quote saying that dynamite is the great leveler of men. It turns kings into peasants and peasants into kings. Yeah. So this is, this is not Gandhi we're talking about here. Right, right. But did it make them guilty of throwing a bomb? That's what was never necessarily proven. And so it was, it was believed that basically this was a, a miscarriage of justice. There have been, you know, oftentimes they've been held up as, uh, they were exonerated afterwards by the, the governor of Illinois, John Peter Altgelt, who was absolutely torn apart by the press because he was, he was a German immigrant himself. Like, how dare you, you know, try to exonerate these men after four were hanged, um, the one guy committed suicide, and the remaining three were pardoned by the governor. So. I would just throw in, I mean, one of the things that we should, it's really a fascinating piece of local history but it's also a piece of, of global history in a way. And when labor movements around the world point to Haymarket as a, as a labor flashpoint that brought, brought forward the eight-hour workday and a lot of the things that we think about the rights of workers. And if you go, the, there's a Martyrs Memorial in um, Forest Park, I believe. Mm -hmm. If you go there, you will still find to this day flowers being placed on those graves, flags from around the country being left there, um, different labor movements all around the world look to that as a symbolic point of a, of a shift in labor history um, in the world. And so this is a thing that happened in Chicago. And interestingly, the rest of the world celebrates May Day as, uh, you know, as, labor, as a labor rights kind of holiday. That's because of this. Of course, our country that's, was too divisive, so we moved it to the first, week, first Monday in September. So, yeah. to, 
I know that uh, we're we sort of pressed. Time, yeah. yeah, we got. I know we're sort of pressed for time, uh, and I know that Professor McIntyre is going to talk about uh, World War II. Uh, I know okay. one of the things that is is striking to me as well about this period uh, is Chicago and Illinois sort of connections uh, still to to their the rural parts of of, of the state. Certainly, uh, you know, farmers are feeling the squeeze in the 1870s and the 1880s. They're joining a number of self-help organizations like the Grange, uh, which is particularly noteworthy for helping farmers. Uh, but also uh, the sort of exposition uh, and, and sort of public uh, entertainment culture, uh, which is a part of uh, the state and of, of the country uh, at the end of the 19th and, and the early 20th century. Uh, so certainly the Columbian Exposition uh, in 1893, right, uh, on the south side of Chicago, right, sort of remakes, you know, sort of that area. It's interesting, certainly, because, you know, if you've read Devil in the White City, right, there's H.H. Holmes and sort of the murders that are taking place there. But it's also occurring at the same time that a, a really terrible economic downturn is hitting the country. Uh, so it's sort of a, a fascinating thing of, uh, you know, taking stock of where uh, North America is, taking stock of where America is and where the world is at this time, uh, but also in the midst of this, this real depression, which is sort of demonstrating the kind of ups and downs of this new industrial economy. Uh, but of course, this is not the only uh, fairer exposition that is occurring, that it does occur uh, within the city of Chicago. There's an exposition uh, in 1918 uh, in support of the First World War, where they rip up Grand Park and they fight uh, mock dogfights uh, with biplanes over uh, the loop. Uh, and, of course, the World's Fair in, in 1933, uh, which, of course, is, um, you know, in the midst of the Great Depression, uh, which, of course, was a, a significantly, you know, difficult thing for uh, Illinoisans and Chicagoans to, to undergo. I want to get to, so we want to get to World War II. So real fast, just so you know, Great Depression happened, Al Capone, it was bad, St. <laughs> Valentine's Day Massacre, and then Harry World War II. Wait, wait, Capone, Capone bad? Or fast forward, bad. Capone bad. Capone bad. I, fast I, forward, I, World War II. I've got your link. So everybody's heard of O'Hare, right? Where does the name come from? World War II. Fighter pilot, Butch O'Hare Jr. How does he get here? Great Depression, Butch O'Hare Sr. is a CPA in St. Louis. He's a certified accountant. Not many people lead, need accountants during the Great Depression. So he told, his, you know, he told his wife, look, I'm gonna head up north, maybe Chicago, bigger city, I can find some work. I'll take our oldest son with us, Butch Jr. Um, and he found work as an accountant in Cicero. <laughs> He's the guy who turned state's evidence on Capone. Because <laughs> he, you know, Butch O'Hare Sr. is looking at the books going, if I go along with this, I'm going to jail. <laughs> you know, because he's an accessory to all of this. So he, and, and so Butch O'Hare Jr. actually gets into Annapolis and makes a really interesting choice. He, his, first, um, his first posting out of the Naval Academy is to the battleship New Mexico which in the Navy before World War II, if you get to a ba battleship is where you want to be. And if you're a junior officer, with that means they like you, you're on a fast track. Um, but he actually decided to go to aviation school, and he became the first Navy ace in World War II. Um, Chicago itself is just an enormous production facility during the Second World War. There's over 1,200 different set locations throughout the city and suburbs. Um, there's, there's the munitions manufacturer down in Elwood. There's an incident there. Um, <laughs> but there's, you know, they're making everything from bullets and shells and torpedoes to parts for landing craft, airplanes, name it. Okay, which also helps pull us out of the Great Depression because there's just tremendous employment opportunities going on in the city at the time. Um, 
So if anyone else would like to kind of build on that or if anyone has questions on that. Nope, we're going to fast forward because we are, we are behind schedule. So we are going to 1946 to 1978 blues and radicals. So we're jumping ahead. We cannot miss the 60s. So it's killing me that we're not at least yep. mentioning Jane Addams and Hull House. That was one of the, can you just, just show them, just really, really quickly, just so I can show them and just say, it's so important. It's such a big part of, of Illinois and American history. Um, I mean, she's responsible for creating the first settlement house in, in the United States, trying to help the immigrants and, and kind of navigate their way around the city of Chicago, um, modeled after, after Toynbee Hall in London. Um, and that's what, it was a huge, it spanned all blocks of the city of Chicago on the west side. Um, the house is still there today. The rest of it's been torn down and replaced by the ugly structure that is UIC. Um, and so there you go. So you, you can How keep going. You. I just had to at least mention, I had to mention it. Oh, house should be capitalized. Okay, post-war? Sure. I mean, there's a number of factors to consider post-war. Uh, you know, speaking from sort of uh, personal history, uh, I am from uh, Brookfield, Illinois. Uh, I'm sure some of you have been to our zoo. Uh, you know, the <laughs> that's about all we got. Uh, the, the rise of suburbia, right? Uh, so certainly uh, many of Chicago's suburban communities and what constitutes a suburb you know, existed well before World War II, but it's really after World War II where you get things like the GI Bill, uh, many veterans returning, getting access to home loans, uh, and changes in the tax code in the 1950s that allow folks to be able to purchase uh, single-family homes and to write off, uh, you know, things like property taxes and whatnot. Uh, and so as a result of that, you're going to start to see the transformation of many of these communities, right? So if you kind of wonder why many of the, the houses, let's say, for example, in your town, uh, all say they were built between, say, 1945, 1955, or, or something of that nature, right? Uh, you know, that would be why. Uh, as you move into the 50s and into the early 60s and start to see uh, the great outgrowth uh, and connection of the national highway system as well, uh, this, of course, also transforms uh, the landscape in and around not only the city of Chicago, but certainly uh, how folks are able to travel throughout the, the state of Illinois. Uh, I have a number of, of relatives in my family that are from uh, Stark County and, and, and some small farm towns and things. Uh, and you know, they would take things like Ogden Avenue, right, Route 34 to, to go west. Uh, you know, many decades ago, you know, 50s, 60s, now you can take highways, right? Uh, you can take these, these interstates, uh, which, which, which sort of transform things. Um, you know, and, and these communities, of course, held on to certain aspects uh, of their identities, uh, both from World War II uh, and from their immigrant histories in some cases or from their, their connections to working uh, for different factories or for, for different companies. Uh, I'm just the, the thing that I'm thinking of in my head right now, for example, would be uh, Maywood, Illinois. Uh, if you've ever taken the Eisenhower Expressway uh, in, in that particular area and you've gotten off at First Avenue, you may have noticed uh, where it says Baton Drive and kind of wondered, that's interesting, why would they do that? Uh, it's because there was a unit uh, from Maywood, uh, from the National Guard area there, that was involved in the Bataan Death March in, in World War II. Uh, and so even though the, the racial dynamics of, of Maywood transformed after the war, uh, much like many other communities did, uh, if you, you travel to Maywood now, uh, a central part of, of their, at least, community history is, is connecting uh, to the war, right? The legacies of, uh, of the war, despite changes like the, you know, the ripping up of part of it in the construction of the Eisenhower Expressway. Right, and you also have, with that labor pull, right, like just a whole second great migration coming to Chicago, and that leads into this too. You know, there's this farmer down in Mississippi named McKinley Morganfield who's doing pretty well. He's got a farm plot, a juke joint that he runs, uh, moonshine still, uh, but his, his neighbors keep moving out and telling him, you know, 
his nickname Muddy. You better go up to Chicago and see what, and, and that's Muddy Waters, obviously, right? And and but you also you know, and so you get Leonard Chess, right? And Chess Records, which um, inadvertently I would say kind of introduces the world to the like. When these guys come up to Chicago, they're used to playing acoustically. They trade their acoustic guitars and so forth for electrics, and that's Chicago blues, and that's the blues the world knows about, you know, and, and it does have that effect. Like, the first U.S. tour that the Rolling Stones did, their opening act was Muddy Waters, and they were, you know, they were kind of thinking that he should be the headliner because he was their inspiration. He's buried in Restvale, too, in Alsa, so if you go to 115th and Ridgeland, he's right there. I've done the pilgrimage. It's also worth noting that uh, Benny Goodman started off in the Hull House Orchestra uh, in, his, in his early years. I'm just, just making that little, little note there. Okay, so just really, <laughs> really quickly. Marx Farm in LaGrange. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. I did not know that. Oh, yeah. Okay, so um, the guy that you see oh, before you, you uh, is right. Papa Bear Daly, Richard J. Daly, his honor. Um, basically, he was a, a, a fixture, a staple of Chicago for many, many, many years. <laughs> Um, eclipsed by his son, who served, I think it was one extra year than he did, so he actually won a little bit further than his father did. But Richard J. Daly was a foot soldier um, in what was like the Chicago machine. Um, Anton Cermak was the mayor of Chicago, who incidentally was actually assassinated while riding in a car with Franklin Delano Roosevelt um, in 1932. Thankfully, I mean, you know, for us, I guess the bullet hit Cermak and not Roosevelt. I mean, you know, sorry for Cermak, but we kept Roosevelt. So anyway, um, but Richard Daly rose through the ranks, becomes mayor in 55, and basically becomes like mayor for life, right? He's not going anywhere. And he is like the emblematic of the Chicago machine. I'll give you a job, you give me your patronage. You give me your support. You get your, your neighbors to support me. Aldermen, get out there and get your cousins. Or whatever. You are, you're all working to support my reelection and I will keep you employed. Yes, sir. It was the, the father, yeah. And, and incidentally, that's that's actually one of the, the sad things about it. If you want to go to the next one, I think I've got a mention. I think I talk about that on there. Well, there's the yeah, O'Hare Airport. Um, yeah, I do mention like public housing projects. Yeah. So initially, like places like Cabrini Green that are now torn down, um, that became known as ghettos in the sky, were initially very beautiful. They were built to be to to, to offer low income housing for people who couldn't afford it. Yeah. Uh, but basically, they became they became urban blights. They weren't supported. They weren't financed as, as they should be. Um, and we could probably go on and on about that, but basically, um, it, Chicago is the most segregated city, one of the most segregated cities in the entire country. So much so that when, when Martin Luther King came up here, um, he's like, you know, I've been all through Alabama, all through Mississippi, and Chicago's the worst I've seen. Um, people openly, you know, throwing around the N-word, throwing rocks at him, um, riots taking place when he marched with his supporters through Bridgeport, which was Mayor Daley's town. Um, so yeah, so I mean, we were we were the scene of lots of um, race riots and um, and still, I would argue, racial tension today. There's a, a really great piece from um, WBEZ about the riots that happened after um, Dr. King was assassinated and how that impacted the west side of Chicago. And basically, all investment and money left that side. They just like abandoned the west side, and we're still um, dealing with that today as a state um, and as a city. So. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, he's, he's referring, of course, to Dr. King's assassination in, in 1968. 1968 was a, was a transformative year, uh, not only for the United States, and, and, but for the world itself. I mean, you've got, by this point, uh, the, 
the Vietnam War coming to a head in something called the, the Tet Offensive at the beginning of that year. Uh, basically, uh, of course, that war had been going on for, for quite a while. You know, the Americans become involved in the aftermath of something called the Gulf, well, more involved after the, the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution in August of 1964. Uh, and there's, there's at least relative support for the conflict, uh, you know, up until 1967-ish. Uh, and what you end up seeing is a, a fairly, uh, you know, popular protest movement that is starting to take place, uh, coinciding with certain incidences. And by the time you get into the early 1968, uh, the, the occasion of the Tet Offensive, this, this mass, uh, you know, conflict throughout South Vietnam, was really kind of a demonstration to the American public that what the federal government had been telling them for the last number of years, uh, they felt had been untrue, right? They felt that the government had not been, been open and honest with them about the realities of what was happening in that war, saying, we're winning, we're winning, we're winning, we're winning. Oh, really? How are you able to then have 250 coordinated attacks at the same time, right? This, this doesn't really, you know, sort of, uh, sort of match up or add up. Uh, and so what you end up having, of course, uh, is uh, President Johnson announced that he's not going to run for re-election. Uh, and so this really throws the Democratic Party uh, sort of open, right, wide open. Uh, and then you have, of course, uh, this, this open primaries uh, sort of si system or situation where the death of Robert Kennedy that summer means the Democratic National Convention in Chicago is going to be this really raucous affair. Because you had a lot of different individual groups that kind of came to the forefront in the counterculture in the 1960s that opposed the Vietnam War for a variety of reasons. And while eventually the majority of the country would oppose the war, really where much of this shifted was this question of, and this is something we still deal with today, uh, is the question of what kind or tactic of protest is acceptable. Uh, Mayor Daley, when it came to the issues of, of protests, was pretty authoritarian. Uh, you know, this is a guy who's not going to allow these permits, and even if folks are protesting nonviolently, he's still going to crack down. And so as the convention is taking place in the city of Chicago, uh, the Chicago Police Department is basically sent in to break up the protests. Uh, and they do so violently, you know, beating and assaulting protesters in the streets. Now, some individuals, of course, engage in a bit of fisticuffs back, uh, but this really was the Department of Justice comes in afterwards and does a study of this, uh, saying that this was a riot that was undertaken by the, the, the city of Chicago's police department uh, against these particular protesters. Uh, so, you know, the summer of 1968 and this, you know, question of, uh, of the Vietnam War is a, is, a, is a real tough time for this, this fracturing of American culture, right, between this sort of idea of counterculture and conservatism. I just really, I want to just make a quick point. And I'm sorry. No, no you can. And, and also, coming after this this riot in downtown Chicago, you have a trial of some of these protesters known as the Chicago Eight, yep. and their civil rights are, you know. And again, we're in the national spotlight. This is this is really not a good national spotlight for Chicago in 1968 because. Sorry. In the aftermath of the riot, you then have these trials where these defendants' rights are clearly violated, and it's all, you know, very, very much in the media. Yeah, yeah I just also want to just mention that in light of just recent events with Laquan McDonald, et cetera, um, Richard J. Daley, uh, when Martin Luther King was assassinated and the riots broke out, issued a shoot-to-kill order to the police. Shoot-to-kill and then shoot-to-maim um, was basically to, to try to get – and so – it was one of those where it sent a very clear message. Anyone that had a Molotov cocktail in their hand was going to be was going to be shot. Now that could that could be a whole conversation that we could have on our own about you know the um, the lawfulness of that order. But uh, he basically he he was given the convention because of the idea that it was he who could bring order. And when he was not able to deliver that order, and it would end up being a disaster, as Josh pointed out, 
um, his reputation took a, took a bit of a hit. He still got reelected by a huge margin, <laughs> but it was a little smaller than it had been in the previous <laughs> year. So, and then he less dead voted for him yeah, after less that. dead people voted. Yeah. yeah, and then he died in 1976. <laughs> okay, I you know I think we are going to <coughs> throw in the towel real quick. So we're not going to make it to 200 years. I'm sorry. There's <laughs> there's a f we made it up to 1968. That's pretty, pretty good. good. Pretty yeah. good. Um, yeah, okay. Yeah. He died in 76. We made it to 76. That's good. <laughs> um, we, could, we have time for maybe one question from the audience, then we'll throw in, throw in the towel. Okay. Oh, origin of the term Windy City? Yeah. That Great comes question. from the Columbian Exposition that um, Chicago and New York were vying for who was going to host the fair. And so Chicago's politicians got a reputation that they, are, they brag about Chicago so much that they're full of wind. They're like windbags. So that's how we get the name Windy. It's not because we're not because it's windy, but it is windy, it is windy. With, the, with the winds off the lake. But it's not because it's actually because of our windy politicians who like to talk like I do too. Well, we had a lot of Vegas performers here. Like you, you had Dean Martin and. I mean, the. I don't know if I could say that Chicago itself was Vegas before Vegas would Vegas, was Vegas, but I would certainly say that, that most urban areas tended to be Vegas before Vegas was <laughs> Vegas. Uh, of, yeah. you know, there, there really was, uh, you know, much as there's a rural versus urban divide today, right? I mean, the majority of, of, of the country lives in suburban environments, right? But there really was this, this rural versus urban divide. And some of you may know this if you have, let's say, uh, relatives or friends who are from rural areas that still to this day uh, at some level have some sort of trepidation or dismay about going into an urban area uh, of, oh my goodness, I'm going into the city. What's going to happen to me? Uh, of, you know, there is a certain element of, of, of cultural conflict there, and there's a lot of elements to that. I mean, part of it's race and part of it's these other things, uh, but certainly Chicago had its, its fairly famous red light district at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, certainly it had its bootlegging operations, uh, you know, during the era of, of prohibition, uh, but, you know, the city itself was seen, yes, as a, uh, a, a dangerous place, just like many cities were uh, within the context of, of that time period. Yeah. Okay, how about a quick round of applause for our panel members? Thank you. Thank you. And a I great audience. I want to thank you, excuse me, thank you all for coming. We have um, in November um, a speaker on uh, Dr. John Lowe from Ohio State coming to talk about um, Native Americans in Chicago, which will be very interesting. And then December 3rd, we are going to have a birthday party here in the, in the library for um, Illinois. We'll have cake, and there's going to be speakers and all kinds of things. So um, then we'll be wrapping up our 200-year uh, bicentennial celebration. So thank you. Wow. Please come if you can. <laughs>